Hi, I'm Michael. Welcome to Beyond the Screenplay, the podcast where each episode we do a conversational deep dive analysis into a film. Today, we are talking about Indiana Jones and the Dial of Destiny, written by Jez Butterworth, John Henry Butterworth, David Kep, James Mangold, and directed by James Mangold. I'm joined by the Beyond the Screenplay team, Trisha Rand. Hello, everyone. Brian Pittner. Hello, hello. And Alex Cayetos. Hi. Okay, so we are in week six of our summer impossible summer season. Next week, we will be getting into the the penultimate entries in the Mission Impossible franchise, Mission Impossible Rogue Nation, and Mission Impossible Fallout. Reminder to everyone that the Barbie versus Oppenheimer vote is still out there. It's still happening, and we are getting down to it. So if you want to sway toward one or the other, head to the Beyond Screenplay Patreon and uh, make your voice heard about the most important vote that will happen this year. (laughs) Okay, so there is a new Indiana Jones movie, and we have all seen it. Uh, I had cautious optimism toward this movie because when the first teaser came out, you know, even before the teaser, there was rumors of, well, it's James Mangold. And I was like, okay, I really like Logan. Like, okay, maybe something cool will happen here. And then Phoebe Waller-Bridge is involved and like, okay, she's good. She makes things good. Like, I'm excited about that. And then the teaser came out and I didn't hate it. And there was even some like fun, I don't know, like a little bit of spark of magic in it. And I was like, maybe, 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 maybe this could be really good. I was... (laughs) Pause. (laughs) (laughs) And that's our episode, everybody. (laughs) So it's definitely better than Crystal Skull. Like, I don't think it's a bad movie, and I think it's probably a safe evaluation of Crystal Skull to say that it is a bad movie in many ways. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I mostly feel like watching this movie in the theater, it was kind of just like waiting for myself to feel something or to be sucked into the story. And I wasn't ever like against what was happening and like a visceral, I don't don't like this, but I also wasn't ever engaged. It was kind of just like watching things happen for a long time. Uh, And by the third act, I did kind of start to lean forward in my chair, actually, like things started happening that was, I was curious about and wanted to see where they were going to go. And I feel like Harrison Ford, Phoebe Waller-Bridge definitely came to play. I think there were some really nice performances, you know, toward the end there and the sort of goodbye to Indiana Jones. Seeing Marion come back at the end was like really Mm -hmm. sweet. And I'm like, this is like, you've aged so gracefully and beautifully. This is like such a nice little nice. So there were good things about it. And the time travel aspect, I think is interesting my critique is that i think they could have leaned into that harder and i want to get into that more with you guys so overall i am kind of meh i have some thoughts about the visual effects i didn't hate it i didn't love it it was a thing that happened to me uh (laughs) crystal skull (laughs) trisha what are your thoughts Yeah, I guess I feel similarly. Like, I feel primarily relieved that Harrison Ford does not have to go out on Crystal Skull. Like, Mm, yeah. And I feel like it seems when you watch it that that was like James Mangold's like central, like 
object like thing that he had in mind was like, I have to save the legacy. Like, and by that, I have to just not make garbage. Like, so <laughs> it seems like, you know, Harrison Ford, there's so much reverence there for him and for the character in a way that I think is lovely and ultimately kind of moving, right? Like I was really emotional also by the end. Um, you know, I thought maybe we he wasn't going to make it through this movie. Mm-hmm. And the movie certainly wants you to think that at different points. But I, I kind of was relieved with where we left it, where I was just like, yeah, let's snatch the hat off the clothesline and ba-boom, that's it. <laughs> like that's an okay place to leave it. But overall, I think it's pretty bumpy. Um, it is certainly the fourth best Indiana Jones movie. And that's not nothing. Um, but yeah, it's pretty bumpy. Like I, I had actually more or less fun, like minute to minute when I was watching it. Um, and I don't hate the way it looks completely. Like <laughs> I was feeling some uh watching the trailers and then I was a little bit relieved like when we got into it and I was like, there's some dramatic lighting happening and like there's some kind of throwbacky things in the way that this looks. Um, and I don't hate the color necessarily. Like there, there were things that I did not hate about how it looks and like the Williams score is there. The performances are there. There's lots of like smart stuff here. Um, but then when I was thinking back on it, I was like, but the way that it's all put together, it doesn't all hold together. I don't think. And I was thinking back on it, lying in bed at night, and I was just like, why was that setup never paid off? Why was that setup never paid off? What happened to that plot line? Hey, remember when Indiana Jones was wanted for murder and then the movie forgot about it? (laughs) (laughs) And he just went home at the end. (laughs) Nothing ever happened with it. Uh, What happened with this? And it feels like there were some scripting issues Um, And that like what went out the door was sort of an amalgam of a variety of ideas in terms of the actual structure and plot. Um, And so it's not a perfect movie. Um, And it's in terms of story. And um, I can't wait to start to really pull it apart because I do think it's a fascinating case of a legacy sequel where it's it's not abysmal. Um, But we're all just kind of like, even for a franchise that we genuinely really love. So that's kind of where I'm at with it. Yeah. Yeah. Fair. Brian, what about you? I might be the contrarian here in a different direction than usual, which is to say that I loved it. Um, Yeah. uh, I I had a great time with it. I, I'm not going to disagree with most of the criticism here because I am not going to be, sort of objectively protective of this movie, but there was something about it that just felt right to me. It felt like Indiana Jones to me in a way that Crystal Skull didn't. It felt like the best you could make an Indiana Jones movie in 2023. Like there's, there's a sort of like, what do you do? You know, like what do you do Mm -hmm. with this franchise that sort of doesn't almost doesn't belong anymore without completely rebooting it, which I'm sure they'll do in three years. We'll get into the opening sequence where, you know, the, 
cartoon face was just my it was my CG groundhog from from Crystal Skull. It was like the movie is opening by going, you're not going to like this, are you? Um, <laughs> and uh, and, you know, I'd already seen some of the reviews and everything. So I was like, all right, here we go. And um, but after that, uh, I was I was pretty much totally on board with it. And other than other than me, just not even the sequence itself was fine. But me not just just not liking de-aging stuff, especially used that much. Um, but the worst I felt during the movie was kind of the meh you guys are describing. Like some of the action was fine. It wasn't super exciting. It was fine. You know, and some of the little, I don't know, some of the lines or some of the plot things were fine. But like if the worst I'm feeling in an Indiana Jones movie is fine and the rest of the time I'm feeling pretty good, like I'm, I'm okay with that. Um, and, uh, and yeah, a lot more, a lot more to say. I, I, I like Phoebe Waller-Bridge. I like that, um, you know, she's like the only actor in Disney movies who still gets to be horny. Um, whether, <laughs> whether it's in Solo with fake Han Solo or in this with real Han Solo. <laughs> and yeah, like I, I think there was a lot here that felt like this is what I want from a final installment. And as you said, Trisha, I'm glad that this is where we are ending this franchise. It's not, you know, three movies in a coaster. It's like, OK, we had one on one off, you know, as long as Sala's in it, it's going to be OK. Um, I, I think that this was a a noble effort and I had a really good time with it. And I'm sure I'm going to. um have negative things to say about it. The more that I think about it, maybe the more we talk about it, when I see it again, the more I think about it, but I am very pleased with my sort of the taste in my mouth right now after having just seen it. Nice. Well, it's good. I feel like I'm, I'm feel like we might have a nice rounded uh, set of perspectives here. Maybe let's see, Alex, what, what were your thoughts on this movie? Yeah, I, I think I'm closer to Brian here. Um, I had the same experience walking out of the theater of like, you know what? That was perfectly enjoyable. And I had mostly a good time. I think it helped that I went in with zero to low expectations. Uh, I did not need another Indiana Jones movie. I, I agree. It's nice to to have one that is not uh, Crystal Skull to end Harrison Ford's tenure as this character. But um Honestly, I just didn't need this movie. So it was like, well, I'm going to see it because we're doing a podcast about it. But I have no real interest in more Indiana Jones movies because I don't know why you would make one anymore. Um, just honestly. Uh, and uh, so I wanted nothing from it. And what I got from it was like some fun Indiana Jones vibes that that felt more authentic to my love of the earlier films than Crystal Skull, which felt like very bizarre and kind of taking a strange turn <laughs> in just so many choices. And there, there was a return to some charm and some texture that I was missing from Crystal Skull here. Uh, I It also probably helped that my least favorite part of the movie was the beginning of the movie. So the bar, you know, if my bar was low or non-existent, it was moved even lower during that prologue because I just really did not like the look of that flashback scene. I didn't like the de-aging. I didn't like how dark it was. I didn't like the visual effects. And so I was really uncomfortable during that scene and feeling like, oh, man, a whole movie of this. I don't know if I can take it. And then the next sequence is, you know, in 1969 in New York. Right. Uh, it's just like it was all I liked the visuals of it. I liked the parade. I liked being in this time and place and I was enjoying myself. So, yeah, I, I overall I can say I enjoyed it. Uh, I don't have strong feelings about it and don't know if I ever need to see it again. Uh, but 
I had a good time. Nice. I will say I took a group of teens to see this. Um, and overall, and at least a quarter of them had never seen an Indiana Jones movie before. Mm. Fascinating. <laughs> I know. Listen, I told this group of teens that I was taking to this movie. I was like, listen up, everybody. If you haven't seen this, you have to go watch at least like the first 15 minutes of Raiders on your Disney Plus. Like, just get your life together and at least experience that. Um, and and the, they didn't because um, they don't listen to me because they're Gen Zs, um, which is fine. It's, it's great. But overall, I would say that they generally really liked it. Like, they had a good time with it. Um, and so I think expectations coming in has a really big thing to deal with it. There were other teens that had seen the original trilogy and hadn't skipped Crystal Skull because people had told them it was bad. And those teens really liked this too. So like they weren't expecting, you know, Crystal Skull and they also weren't expecting Raiders. They just kind of came into it fresh and most of them really, really enjoyed it. And like there was a, there were, a, a, you know, lots of applause in my theater and like, you know what? I was eating popcorn by the handful. It was, if you could just like get on the wavelength of it, um, and sort of come in with as clean of a slate as possible to it, which for me, I was not able to, but lots of people really are and really have a good time with it. Um, and so I just want to say, you know, here's the Gen Z report from me. <laughs> interesting. I think it's an interesting part of the conversation, which is you get this a lot in video games, which is like, oh, it's a good game. It's just not a good insert franchise here game where people are like, this mm -hmm. is what I want from this thing, but that's, and, and we get that, you know, with, with now that these franchises are, especially with like star Wars or Marvel, like they're, they're becoming lots and lots of different things. It's okay. Is the, is the thing itself good as a standalone thing in a vacuum versus is it a good installment in this franchise? Is it a good under, under this umbrella of this franchise? And I think this was a better for me, Indiana Jones movie than it was a movie. Yes. Um, but people who don't care or know about Indiana Jones, they're just seeing a movie. They're seeing this movie in 2023. Right. And that's really weird. <laughs> like, <laughs> it's and a I pretty weird movie to see just uh, yeah. in 2023. <laughs> sure. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and so, yeah, so this is really fascinating. And I think maybe kind of what you're saying there, this kind of, these kind of two experiences of like, you know, a good Indiana Jones movie versus a good movie. And I don't know that this is, I don't know. I'd be curious if someone could say it is both of those things for them. I just want to go back to the beginning because I'm <laughs> listening to you guys. I'm having, I had a very different experience. And so I kind of mm. want to tease apart why that might be. Um, and so there is this, so this prologue opening, I'd also heard that like the first 20 minutes, there's like a young Indiana Jones and I was sort of like, oh, okay, we're going to do this again. And they reveal it and it's like, okay, this is like the best deep faking that has ever <laughs> been done probably in like a big budget studio. And that's probably the best way to do it. It's like to the lay person, I wonder like how creepy it was compared to other de-aging things. And it's to people like me, it's like, oh, it's just a different flavor of soulless de-aging. So that's kind of fun. Uh, you get a different flavor of it. But what I liked about the conception of it was like the setting was Indiana Jonesy to me of like, oh, we're back with Nazis and we're back stealing a thing and it's dark and it's rainy and World War II. Like it was broadcasting all the Indiana Jones vibes to me in terms of like 
the, the plot and the situation that Indy found himself in. And so I found that interesting, even if I didn't like the visual effects or the way a lot of it like looked, especially the extended train sequence. And the, there's, there was a lot happening there. Yeah. <laughs> but there was something about the setup of it that felt like the setup for an indie story that like pulled me in. And it was like about the object from the very beginning and just all these things that I was like, okay, I'm into this. And they were hinting at the time travel. And I was like, okay, I'm really into this. Such that I wanted to go back. And maybe this is just my personal, I love time travel movies. And yes, it'd be crazy to have an Indiana Jones movie where he time travels a lot, but like you already to borrow your phrase, I believe, Trisha, you nuked the fridge with Crystal Skull. Indiana Jones has seen aliens, so, like, why not have him right. time travel? <laughs> He's literally seen aliens. Yeah. <laughs> yes, and didn't tell anybody, like, everybody's just fine. I don't know, whatever, right. that's fine. He's seen things, quote-unquote, and also Shy is dead, and, like, we got rid of that. <laughs> Yeah. I think my f- genuine favorite line in the movie is when he's like, I had to drink the blood of Kali. And like, I've been <laughs> yeah. shot nine times. And I was like, right. yeah, thank you. At least acknowledge right. where we've been here. Anyway, so this this kind of tangent of mine about like how I wish I thought they were setting up more time travel that was going to happen mm. earlier. And that that like we would have had like a back to the future on our hands almost, but Indiana Jones style. And there was something about that that was appealing to me. And I think as goofy as it could have been, for me, it's really hard to think about Indiana Jones in a different time and place. And for me, I think the setting of Indiana Jones matters a lot. And so him being in 1960s New York, I just at no point felt like this was the same Indiana Jones character uh, from the other ones. So yeah, that was just an interesting thing where I I was thinking that about that a lot, the setting and how they have time travel set up and how they could have used that as a device to bring Indy back to a time period where his, you know, it, it fit the the previous settings a little bit more. I don't know that it would have been a good movie, but it was just interesting that they could have done that, that they set up time travel really early and then save it for like the second half of the third act, basically. So thoughts. So many. I agree. I think this feels with the prologue that it's like a direct sequel to Last Crusade, you know, mm-hmm. um, like you could watch one, three and five very easily and mm-hmm. miss nothing about two and four in mm-hmm. terms of like plot or character, anything really. Two's a prequel, four is whatever the hell that is. <laughs> and clearly that's the intention, right? In terms of opening the movie there. You don't have to have met Mutt to... For that monologue to right, to right. hit hard. Probably exactly works right. better. Yeah. yeah. Right. <laughs> <laughs> like I wasn't that sad that he was dead, but you, we would probably feel really sad if you didn't know. The prologue is like announcing itself as like, this is a direct sequel to three. And I agree that the setting is a huge part of that. Um, I, and I'm with you in that I kind of wanted more back in that time. Like the de-aging to me looks good. Like, it still looks like fake de-aging, but it looks better than like the Irishman or the whatever the Disney TV, what Star Wars show was it that did it a lot? Uh, Mandalorian, Mandalorian or something. Yeah. yeah um, it's the same technique that they used, but like much improved. It mm-hmm. looks really good to me. Yeah. And like, I'm not saying that that's what I want. Fun fact. I don't know if you guys remember, but when we were doing our Crystal Skull episode, I pitched what I would do 
with Indiana Jones 5. And the first right. 40 minutes of this movie are really similar to what <laughs> I pitched that I would do mm. with it. Um, I'm not saying anybody heard me. <laughs> and because the movie was already shot at that point. So it didn't matter what I was put. I just want to say that. But it, it is very similar in a lot of ways. I pitched that Mutt doesn't necessarily need to still be alive. <laughs> yeah. See, we were working on it, Brian. Great yeah. minds. Yeah. But my thought was that, and, and actually what I pitched was that you'd recast the character instead of DH him. Mm -hmm. um, because that would also give you the opportunity to keep making Indiana Jones movies back in the time and setting mm. because the time and setting are so important yeah. with a younger actor. But they didn't want to do that. I get that. That's a risk. Um, so they did the de-aging instead. But again, with the time setting, like it's just such part of the fabric of like the story world and the character as in all the best movies are a direct, like so directly um, woven together and so inextricable from each other that it is weird to see Indiana Jones anywhere else. So I was almost like this frame story is fine and definitely give Harrison Ford, you know, things to do in the frame story. But if there had been more adventures back in the past that ended up, being relevant to what was happening, you know, and I thought for sure when I was like, okay, we're really going to go through a fissure in time. We're going to meet like old Indian, young Indian. You're going to like meet face to face, like something is, you know, I just felt like we were going to really start grappling with the time travel aspect, not quite the same way that you did, but just, if you're going to, if you're going to do this prologue and then you're going to do time travel, then why, why not? It should be really interesting to have you continue to flash back to young Indy and he's like going towards somewhere and then old Indy mm. like goes through the thing and then you realize that you've been like they're doing a memento where the, those two time periods like get together at the end. I was kind of hoping. Yeah. It's interesting because yeah, the these time travel proposals, they, they would be a, a break from the usual structure of, in, of Indiana Jones film where I think the way time travel plugs in right now is the same way the Holy Grail plugs in, for example, where we don't. Indiana Jones doesn't experience literal magic until that third act moment of mm -hmm. the arc being opened or, you know, the hand reaching to a chest somehow or the grail being drunk. It, there's always that kind of like or the alien. <laughs> there's always that kind of final moment of reaching the thing, experiencing a supernatural event, essentially, and then returning. And so, it, I mean, I would have found it really interesting and cool if this movie broke from that convention but in some ways it felt right to me if, if we're the goal of this movie is to basically just make a an indiana jones movie that is not crystal skull that sends <laughs> off the character nicely then it it feels like this stuck to that formula where you mm -hmm. don't go supernatural until that finale and that's where you kind of like take the big swing well i mean not to jump straight to the end here but that's the biggest bump for me in this movie is the, the ending and the whole time travel bit. And I think, I feel like the way to do it maybe is either the way that Michaelis and I are talking about with like more time travel or at least more flashbacks. You don't necessarily actually have to have more time travel if you had more flashbacks, but I understand that that's difficult and expensive. You had $300 million. I'm, I'm not saying it was impossible <laughs> on your budget. I'm, depends on how you want to spend it, I guess. Um, did, but where sure. Did <laughs> where did it go? Hmm. It's a very big I, movie, but yeah, it, the way it looks throughout. It? 
Yeah. I read a review where the reviewer said he just kept longing for the $100 million version of this movie. And I, I felt that deeply. Mm. Yeah. So the problem is that with a supernatural event being in the third act, as you're talking about, Alex, there's usually, at least in the really good Indiana Jones movies, there's room for doubt, right? Where Indiana right. Jones has room to doubt his own experience of the supernatural. And right. that's what keeps him like, sort of grounded and in the like historical space, right? Where he doesn't actually see the Nazis' faces melting off. His eyes are closed the whole time. He just right. opens them. Like we see that, but he opens them and then they're all gone. Um, and like he sees, you know, stuff with the Holy Grail and whatnot. But the way that it manifests, it's like still relatively grounded, right? That guy gets old and dies. Re- that Nazi gets old and dies really fast. And then his dad <laughs> is miraculously healed, but it doesn't look like like visually it's not on the scale right that this supernatural event is and i think that that's kind of a problem at least it was for me so like what if when they had gone back in time like they landed instead of like in the middle of an enormous battle where people in togas are shouting about dragons and trying to like take them down with spears instead of that what if they had like gone to a rural part of greece or like a rural part of the island where there's like not much there maybe some like ruins or like one house or something and they met like one little family or something and there's again there's room for doubt it's like well did this really happen this way um it's not the siege of Syracuse with thousands of soldiers and the whole bit. I, I just, it just feels like in the spirit of Indy, it should have been maybe a smaller, still supernatural event, but not quite mm. uh, on this visual scale. I totally agree. Um, yeah, that, that was, I definitely about halfway into the movie, I was like, oh, oh, they're going to time travel at the end, aren't they? Like, like Mads Mikkelsen was kind of teasing it with some of his lines, like, see you in the past. Um, right. And then when we actually start doing it, I'm going, all right, like this movie has, I've been on board pretty much this whole time. So like, this is, if this movie is going to throw me off, like this is where, so I was, I was clenching going into that. And then as they start kind of what, where are we? What are we seeing? I was like, just don't let it be dinosaurs. Like, <laughs> right. right. You already, you already yeah. cheated yeah. with your Please. Jaws sequence. Now don't give us, don't like re Spielberg with a Jurassic Park sequence. Um, and, um, and, and then I agree with you, Trisha. Once it, once it was like, Oh no, we're fully showing everything here. And like, we're running around. Um, I was just like, ah, okay, that's not that's not mysterious and exciting, you know, the way that I yeah, want. Yeah, the supernatural should be mysterious and exciting. Right. So yeah. I, I wanted something, you know, something like you're describing or, you know, he meets one person, but it's Archimedes or whatever. Or right. it's like, you know, Mads Mikkelsen's like, turn the plane around. And they do, but like just through the window, Indy sees a something, right? And like that's yes. the, and that like yes. for him made the whole thing worth it or something, right? Um, and then I had the is it a good movie versus a good Indiana Jones movie moment where I went, the Indiana Jones fan in me was going, you know what? I'm not a fan of this whole sequence necessarily, but Indiana Jones gets to be in history. He gets to be in the middle of this thing. He gets to meet Archimedes. Like that's pretty cool. And he's going to stay here. Like, and that's like, that's kind of cool too. And then Phoebe Waller bridge is like, I just killed James Bond. I can't do that. (laughs) Um, So, so there was definitely a part of me that was like, 
objectively, I don't know that how much I like any of this, but there is, but there was like, I was indie for a moment there going like, this is really cool for this character who I've been spending almost my entire life with. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think conceptually I liked it. I liked the idea of if you're going to do a final send off to a franchise or to to a main character in a franchise, uh, pushing it all the way and taking like the biggest of swings I admire. And I think there's something, there's something genuinely fun about the idea of Indy actually going to the historical moment he's taught in his classes or whatever, um, as the supernatural event. But I think it's the execution of it that is so bumpy where it's, Mm -hmm. you know, the extras kind of just look like actors and their toga costumes. And like, did they believe in dragons back then? Had they seen things like dragons that they would jump to the conclusion this was dragons? Um, So, yeah, it was just the execution of that whole sequence was really bumpy. And yeah, the green screeniness of it all when he meets Archimedes doesn't feel magical because it's just so we're all just on green screens kind of like adrift in space with like weird <laughs> backdrops behind us. It was like a doctor uh, who episode. Or something. Yeah. I yeah. just didn't, it didn't have that magic of like the grail room or, you know, those, those right. going, going into the cave and finding the magic. So yeah, I, I, I love the idea and I even love the time travel stuff of, you know, there's propellers on the grave because he saw the propeller planes, you know, back then. I, I like that I like stuff. That stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, the execution was pretty. There was some pretty like I almost laughed out loud moments during that sequence <laughs> yeah. in a bad way. <laughs> yeah. Well, and I think that's why, like, I think saving it for the third act is problematic because they're they're kind of trying to have their cake and eat it, too. Like, I, I like Brian, you're your version where you see a glimpse of it and it's like, yes, it's real. And that like, but that would have to be part of his character arc. Like that'd have Mm -hmm. to be like really significant and meaningful. Uh, And I don't know what his character arc is. And I think sending him into the past, we could have had a lot of that, you know, that's that same thing, which I think is cool of like, wouldn't it be cool if Indy got to go into history? I think that is like a neat thing to do, but trying to set it up and execute it and like do all of that in the last kind of 20 minutes of the movie felt like too much and totally detached from whatever character journey he might have been on that I wasn't really tracking whatsoever or even like Phoebe Waller-Bridge I don't know the character arcs weren't well defined in this movie yeah Trish is gonna scream yeah (laughs) so character arcs have to be set up crystally cleanly not crystal scully crystal cleanly (laughs) in the first act that's where they go like you have to pin down what the character's flaw is what is the problem what is broken in indy's life and it needs to be absolutely clear and understandable the problem is that the movie is relying so much on just look at him he's old and cranky (laughs) And, and not pinning down what's wrong. Like, Marion's gone. Um, Mutt is dead. But also, he's retiring. He doesn't seem to like that. His students aren't paying attention to him anymore. That seems disappointing. Um, his neighbors are rude. Like, he's just generally sort of unhappy. And the movie is, is counting on us to do the work of, like, aren't you sad that times have changed also and that's not a problem like the the idea of like times have changed is not a character flaw 
It's just simply not a character flaw unless the movie goes out of its way to explain why, what about the current time as opposed to the time that you remember and care about what exactly about this no longer makes sense to you, fits with you, makes you unhappy, blah, 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 blah. You have to actually like connect the dots about what the flaw is if you're going to arrive at a thing by the end. And so like if Indiana Jones wants to go to the past because he hates the present, tell me why exactly he hates the present and what exactly he's looking for in the past. You got to neaten it up because right now it just doesn't make any sense. Like if it's Marion, if it's Mutt, great. You know, I think the only like thing that you could probably say about Crystal Skull as being like good um, <laughs> is that at the end of that movie, there is some resolution to Indiana Jones's like globe trotting nature. Like maybe the thing that I was searching for out there in all of these tombs and all of these artifacts, maybe that thing that I was searching for, I can stop looking for because I have a family now. Okay, that's where we left him at the end of Crystal Skull. And now here he is. He has no family now. He also doesn't have that thing anymore. But like, which is the issue? What are we searching for? What's the real problem? And I feel like the movie is not interested in it, actually. Like, again, it's counting on us as the audience to do some kind of meta work about it that isn't in the text. And that's really frustrating. So when you get to the final few moments of Phoebe Waller-Bridge arguing with him about why he has to come back, I'm so unclear what they're arguing about on both sides. And I just, like... I also feel like there ought to be a lot more work about like why the siege of Syracuse and Archimedes in particular is special because Indiana Jones seems to like all of history equally. But like, (laughs) I I guess this is extra special to him for some reason. Um, Even though it wasn't, he hit the dial in a drawer and was like... he didn't care about it. (laughs) You were too obsessed with it, so I just put it away. Like, but now it's like, I'm going to give up my entire life in 1969 to be here with Archimedes. Um, I just... (laughs) the setups and payoffs are not clean in this, but neither are the character arcs. There's a, I think there's a line in the trailer where he says like, I I've been looking for this all my life. And I don't think that line was actually in the movie where he's talking about the death. Heavily stitched together from parts of his monologue at the end. Okay. Interesting. Yeah. It was really interesting in that first New York sequence. The movie seemed to be telling me there's something about this like space race moment or the, you know, the moon landing, like something is not working for Indy about that. And like, is there something kind of like, does he hate technology? Yeah. Like, is is there something like in opposition to history? Like people are thinking about the future now, like we're all sci-fi now and we don't care about earthbound things. It seemed like the movie was like, or some earlier draft was like about that, but then it wasn't anymore. And so it was, it was strange to me that there's so much about the space race and the astronaut parade in that early sequence that then doesn't seem to pay off at all, as you say, Tricia. So like, and, and I, and I also found it really strange in that final scene that you're talking about where the brawler bridge suddenly is deeply invested in bringing Indiana Jones back to the present um, and like getting Marion back with him and kind of having a family where I don't see where that transition happened, why that transition happened. Why does she care so deeply about that? I mean, if anything, there's maybe like a one-off line where, you know, Indiana Jones says people don't memorize their dad's notebooks if they don't 
if all they care about is money or something. Mm -hmm. So maybe something there about she she does care about family, but I I didn't there were no dots connected as you were saying, Trisha, to get me from her caring about money, just kind of being a free spirit adventurer to like the most important thing to her is that Indiana Jones has to go back to his life in 1969 that he was pretty miserable in and grumpy about. <laughs> like, I, I don't get why that was her thing at the end. Right. Like to me, if anything, that the 1960s sequence made it clear that, no, he doesn't need to be here. Like, no, right. like we don't need him here. He's unhappy. No one's happy. Like, stay. You should stay in. Yeah. Um, well, and yeah, and it's so interesting because again, comparing this to Logan, like I think Logan does such a great job. Like, made a video about the first act of um, Logan and setting up the character arc and the want and the need, and you know Wolverine being tasked with like basically taking care of an aging parent, and you understand why he's afraid to care about somebody in a very like you get it get it and then of course children of men style he gets paired up with the person and so now he's got to go on this journey it's got to force him to learn to care and that's where i feel like if if the message that you wanted to end on was the sort of bizarrely meta and not super well argued lesson of no indy we need you here today like you are important to us <laughs> right. today you're still relevant <laughs> yeah <laughs> Again, that's where I think the time travel storyline could have played a bigger role. Like if he wants to go back and live in history, then that could be you know, either beginning of act two or midpoint. Like he gets the thing that he thinks he wants. And now the journey is, you know, him sort of realizing, no, there's I do need to come back for whatever reason. You'd have to also set up that and give right. you know, Phoebe Waller-Bridge a character arc and all that stuff. But I think that could have been a really interesting like way to explore the theme via the setting also. Um, and if you, again, if you have the time travel and you're setting it up so hard or like, why not use it more anyway? Uh, yeah. Character arc stuff, I think was a, a big bump for me as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I, I definitely felt like they, they wanted to have their cake and eat it too with the ending. They wanted to do both endings, right? They wanted to do the I'm Indiana Jones and like dying here in history is like the perfect way for me to go. And also, let's bring back Sala and Marion and like have a like fun little let's do the scene from Raiders again, you know, and and again, the the fanboy in me, like once they once they did it, I was like, OK, I like this. This is a really fun scene. I like that he gets to kind of live happily ever after and stuff. But everything you guys are saying, like it would have it would have had a stronger theme. It would have actually meant something if he did make that choice to actually stay there at the end. I mean, he did make the choice, but if the movie had let him stay. <laughs> right. <Okay. laughs> right. Yeah. Um, well, like on that exact topic, Indiana Jones movies have never super been like thematically deep. Um, and so perhaps it's unfair to complain about that. Um, I just want to say that like we talked about that in our Raiders episode mm -hmm. where it was like there's some thematic conversation here, but it does not quite hang together. Um one thing I do appreciate about this movie is that it actually seems to be interested in the thing that Raiders is interested in with the Belloc character. Um, and the Phoebe Waller-Bridge character is sort of a Belloc character, right? Where she's like interested in the money piece. She just wants to sell the artifacts. Um, and I think that that's an interesting part of the conversation that Indiana Jones has always been having, which is like, 
are you in this for your, for a pure reason for like the love of it or the wonder of it, or are you in it just to make a buck? Um, and there does seem to be some conversation, actually a lot of conversation about that, where she's very clearly insisting. And it's like a classic, you know, facade where she's like, just the only thing I can count on is cash. And you're just like, okay, you're doing a facade really hard. You're a character doing a character thing. Um, but we all know that actually you care about things. Um, but the crisis moment, like I'm missing the crisis moment for her, right? right. Is it because when they take her kid, I was like, well, they took your kid. Like they took your only person that you only have in the whole world. Um, maybe that's going to be a crisis moment. Nope. We're going to leave him. He'll be fine. Um, and then like they, Indiana Jones is here, but like, what's the crisis moment when they have Indy and it's all not very clear in the sense that there's so much other stuff that muddies any real meaningful thematic conversation for her character arc as well as for his, but uh, I mean, in that case too. Yeah, it's not earned. I thought it was no. funny how how many times it felt like the the screenplay was reiterating they're not going to torture the kid probably like they're not going to hurt him they need to not hurt him that they'll leave him alive for some reason to like get somewhere um, it almost felt like like the the writers were considering oh it's really bad when like Nazis capture a kid he's probably going to be hurt and it seemed like Indy and Helena had to like reassure each other throughout that sequence of like, they're not going to hurt him for sure. So we can focus on getting to the dial. Um, but I, there was, there was a lot of straining in that sequence. And, and then even when she got Teddy and uh, there was another kind of st weird straining to get all the chess pieces into place where it's like, Hey, you go start that plane. Wait, never mind. Don't start that plane. I'm going to get on the motorcycle and like climb into this plane but I already told you to start the other plane. So you're going to fly that plane conveniently to get us back. And yeah, just the way all that played out, it just didn't feel like, like you wanted to feel where it's, it's like the inevitable natural course right. of events are bringing our character arcs to a head. And this must happen. It's a lot of, ah, it's okay if that happens and we'll go do that. And, and we'll get all the pieces in place so we can get the ending we want. Um, but it, it, that's, those are the bumps we're feeling. Yeah. Well, and there's a lot of similar patches, like dialogue patches on other logical things. Mm. Like I was really feeling it at the beginning where she shows up and she says, you lost this dial in a river in France. But we, the audience, know they did not lose that dial in a river in France because we saw Indiana Jones pop out of the water with it. And here it is. It's OK. And so her saying that, like doesn't make sense to us, but we're like, okay, so what's the story? Why does she believe that? Have they been lying for 50 or 30 years or whatever? That's interesting. Um, but no, they haven't been. Her dad had it. Like there's this weird, like, again, you're talking about straining. The dialogue is going in circles about who believes what at any given moment about the location of the object and why that it doesn't need to do. There's a way to like, tie untie all of those knots and just make it neat and clean which is cut away before we see what happens to the dial like if they had popped out of the water and basil had gone like hey indy the dial do you have it what happened to the antikythera cut to ba 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 it's 1969 no one knows where the antikythera is indy has been secretly hiding it all these years because he basil was too obsessed with it blah 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 he never saw it 
She never knew what happened to it. Basil never knew what happened to it. It's so much neater. Why is this all? You don't remember when I was at your house? She's like, nope, I never would. Then we see her. She was 12. Why would she not remember? Oh, she did remember. But then, like, they they told her where the Antikythera was at that time. My dad told her to destroy it. Here it is in this thing. It's just so much work that you didn't need to do. And it's so confusing. That's what I mean when I it, it comes... When I say that this feels like a mishmash of things, it feels like a mishmash of rewrites where we're doing like patching over previous drafts of different things. And for that, I always blame studios or whoever didn't give the writers enough time or just schedules. You know, sometimes that's what happens. But like there's so many things like that where it's like this could be fixed. Why do they get into a just married car? And then no one makes a joke or a comment (laughs) or they don't throw the flowers at the knot. Like, I'm just like, what's the setup? (laughs) It's a setup for something. It's a setup for nothing. They just drive that car to the place. They get out and that's all. (laughs) It's It's Italy. People are getting married. Right. But again, it feels like there was something. Surely there would have been. But then there wasn't anymore. When you just did the fallout thing where you had like seven car chases back to back to back, why didn't you use that car in one of the car chases and make it a the thing? The number like of a, vehicles in this movie. Yeah, it's yeah. a lot of vehicles. Is, there's got to be. I mean, it's like 30. Also, minutes. apparently tuk-tuks can go as fast as like any other car. <laughs> just right. like infinitely through an infinite city. Yeah. Yeah. Well, <laughs> yeah. And so this is where throughout the summer season we've been talking about the mission impossibles and we're, we're going to talk about rogue nation and fallout and obviously tom cruise doing his own stunts them doing as much as possible on camera is a topic that we discuss and will discuss uh and that was very much on my mind in this movie because there is so like there are so many visual effects and i feel like there are so many vehicles because harrison ford is not young he can't run and jump he can sit on a green screen and pretend to drive however uh, is one of the reasons I think there might be so much of that. Mm-hmm. But it felt so detethered from reality that I didn't... I Yeah, someone on Twitter, when the Ant-Man and, and what is it, Quantum Mania trailer came out, they posted a screenshot of you know Ant-Man and his daughter standing in the quantum realm. And they just said, like, this doesn't look like anything to me except two people standing in front of a green screen. And that's how I felt through most of this movie where it was just like there's actions and there's wide shots where people are doing stunts and then it's not great green screen compositing of people like being shot in ways that would have been impossible like it just took me out of the action but so much of this movie relies on the action and that was kind of confirmed for me when they got to that cave sequence and they're actually going through It's probably not a real cave, but like a set where they're climbing through something that looks like a cave and they're climbing up rocks and I can see them touching the world that they're in. Uh, (laughs) And they have to solve a little Indiana Jones puzzle and then slide down and there's water like they're interact. They're actually in this environment that they are like moving through. And it just made me realize how like for certain stories, and I think Indiana Jones is especially so this case, it matters to believe that your characters are in that environment. Like that's kind of the whole point that Indiana Jones is going to go on these adventures. And I wanted more 
of it. Like, I don't need him to run and jump. I just want to see him be in a place. Because to me, it felt more just like, you know, Indiana Jones and the escape from the green screen studio. Like, I just wanted them to be in a real, we're in a real place just a little bit more. Yeah, yeah we, we talked about in Crystal Skull, like I think the one sequence that we all kind of like, uh, except for the like crypt ninjas or whatever they are, <laughs> is just like when they're in when they're in that crypt or whatever it is. And they're just like walking around, they're looking at stuff and they're investigating. And it's just like there's there's that tactile kind of Indiana Jones feel to that. And I like that. Yeah. Yeah. I will say I'm very, very sure that when you set out to make Indiana Jones five, that the studio just hands you a list of boxes of, right. that you have to check of things you that have to be in it. Sure. And if two of those things on the boxes are skeletons and snakes, I like the idea to do them underwater. Mm-hmm. I like that. Yeah, that I think that's cool. Yeah. Like I like the diving sequence. Why was Antonio Banderas <laughs> very underused and right. just, just the movie told me a lot of things were important in this movie that were not actually important. The movie does a lot of like pushing in on things that end up not being important or end up not being the way that the movie is acting like they are. So it's like, here's Indiana Jones. He's like, I have an old friend. Who is it? Is it someone from all the other movies that right. we've seen before? Right, right. Nope, it's just Antonio Banderas, <laughs> which is fine. I'm always glad to see him, but like. <laughs> he's our old friend. He's not a, yeah, he's not a character that we know. Like, And then he, he unfortunately, you know, gets killed off so quickly. But overall, the dive sequence, I think it's a cool idea. Like. Indiana Jones hasn't done that much underwater um, or in boats or whatever, but like that was certainly a thing. And it's a great way to check those boxes in an unexpected and refreshing way. Eels. Why did it have to be eels? Like clever. Like (laughs) you did it clever. Yeah. Yeah. That was fun. Yeah. Uh, I mean, just on a meta note, like we should, you know, we don't, we're not there at the studios like making these movies. Right. But, whenever you see four names like uh, you know and, and the writers like that means first of all i guarantee you 30 people wrote this movie like you Easy. know there there's four people who were credited and that means you know there's there's a list of boxes as you guys were saying and then there's someone you know makes an outline and someone makes a script out of that and they say there's a lot here we like there's a lot here we don't like and then someone else comes along and they either do a pass on that script or they do a completely brand new script but they're trying to keep certain things that were working from the last one and then you end up with something that's like any given scene might be the best it can be but as as you guys were talking about earlier the the on the macro it's this sort of feeling of like why did that theme that was really strong in this you know intro never get explored again why did this thing that seemed like it was the closure of a character arc not feel like it was set up at all you know and i think that that's it's unfortunate it's almost like you need i don't know how because i'm sure everyone has seen this script a thousand times and they can't even like think anymore about what it is or what it should be or what it could be you know and it's like you need you need just like some random person off the street to just be like, where's, where's the character arc? Or is that be like, Oh, right. We, we had one 10 years ago. We just, we forgot what it was. Right. Uh, so it's, it's, yeah. I mean, I don't know what the fix is, but it's just unfortunate. And it's, and, and it's, it's not the first time we've seen this with this kind of lot of people trying to make the best franchise movie they can. And what ends up happening is you get something that feels like there were too many cooks. Yeah. Fix is obviously hire us to do it because of course we do a perfect job and <laughs> yeah that's it's, it's easy once you, if you just know the things that <laughs> we know right. i'm sure it's a super easy thing to do 
Writing is hard. Writing's very hard. <laughs> yes. Writing with these kinds of constraints in this kind of a, a legacy is incredibly hard. And I will say that I've been complaining a lot this episode, but I think that this movie feels like there's a lot of love here for yeah. the material and for the characters. And with all of the like bumps and problems that it has, it at least demonstrates that they really understand the franchise and like not just the constrictions or like the obligations to the audience, but and not in a hollow fan servicey way. They truly want to give something lovely to the audience. Um, and that's what I was trying to highlight at the beginning. It's like we want to do right by this character because we care about him, not because this is an incredibly lucrative property we need to keep going, but because this is actually very meaningful. And I think that when legacy sequels feel the worst to us, it's when it goes the other way and it feels like studios or writers or whoever, they're just cashing in on like things that we care about without truly caring about them, about these symbols or these cultural icons in and of themselves. And I, that doesn't feel like the case here. Mm -hmm. I think that's why it's a better movie than Crystal Skull in a lot of ways. But also, you know, like it's driving towards the character with so much love. The scene where he's retiring, like, and they give him the clock and he just looks sad and you're just like, this feels like we're raw. This feels real. And there's so much in this movie that is operating on that level in a meta way that's not unpleasant, that feels like it rings true. Um, and I do respect the hell out of it for that reason. Yeah. Even if it missed in a lot of ways, it was aiming at the right thing, which, as you're saying, as we're pointing out, is a hell of a task to even do in the first place and should be commended for doing that. Absolutely. Why don't we go around and say what lessons we're going to take from Indiana Jones and the Dial of Destiny. Alex, do you want to start us off? Sure. I think um, one lesson... There's a part of the movie that I don't think I understood. And I think my lesson has to do with that, um, which is if you're going to have kind of a twist in your in your film, which I think it was supposed to play as a twist when Indiana Jones realizes something about continental drift. And that is going to mean you're ending up in a different place. We need to understand like how those mechanics work and like mm -hmm. what the expectation was in the first place and how this changes that expectation. Because I think, yeah, there's this moment going into the rift where bad guy is super confident. I'm going back to like 1939. I'm, I'm, I am going to kill Hitler, but to like be better Hitler, which right. is kind of an interesting twist on the kill Hitler time genius. travel idea. <laughs> yeah. Um, uh, but then there's this almost like last second, twist a uh, realization by Indy uh, that Archimedes couldn't have accounted for continental drift. Uh, but then we learn later that it seems like Archimedes specifically wanted them to go there. Uh, right. So who messed up? Did somebody in the present mess up their calculations and think it was 1939? If you want that moment to play, we need to understand all the context around it. And I think Moments like that can be great where the bad guy has a plan. We're heading into like all hope is lost. 
And then there's this twist on, you know, the, the hero has a realization of, oh my God, no, the whole time it was actually this. And here we go now into a totally unexpected twist third act. Uh, and it just, that moment just fell so flat or it was just confusing to me. Cause I'm like, wait, what, <laughs> what, who messed up what calculation and how does that make sense that that would change what time you go to continental drift? Isn't that just like a navigation thing? Yeah. Um, so yeah, I think just, uh, do that better. Make, make sure we understand what's happening when the bad guy's plan goes awry and that fun third act twist comes in. Uh, so it lands. There are important mechanics that you need for your story. The audience should understand those mechanics. Yes. But also question mark, were those mechanics even important? Important to the story. Is a great, right. Is a right. great question that I'm left with right. as I'm walking away. Also, as you put it out. Um, Trisha, what's your lesson? My lesson is Matt Mickelson. Yes. Yeah. It's a good lesson. <laughs> yeah, I agreed. <laughs> <laughs> He's so very good. Um, but I actually really appreciate that there's like how sinister he is in this um the scene where he's talking to the guy who brings his food in the hotel right like um Mm -hmm. and they're talking about the war and it's like the the be mean to the cat scene yeah yes (laughs) yeah (laughs) it is but it's driving at something very real um and why nazis were bad like there's the movie is very much more uh, plain spoken about the white supremacist aspects of the villains here. Um, you know, one of my favorite little moments in the movie is early on uh, with the bomb that falls like all the way through the floor, but like extra slowly. Like, I actually really, really like that in the in the flashback sequence at the beginning. But before that, right, like Indiana Jones is talking about like these blue eyed boys like they made a bad decision and they followed this, this guy. Um, there's very clear, like there's some white supremacy happening here. So even if it's not in the context of Nazi Germany, it is still evil no matter when it happens. Um, and then of course we lose that wonderful CIA character, um, because he kills her in the plane. Um, I'm very bummed. I really thought that she was going to be a bigger part of the movie. Uh, she's a CIA agent, right? Yeah. Yeah. So, but again, I feel like the menace built up around the character is very real. It's very clear. It's not just in Mads Mikkelsen, Mads Mikkelsen's performance. And so I appreciate that. I think he's a memorable Indiana Jones villain. Um, and I think his plan is a little goofy, but overall, I think he works as a really good antagonist and the chase bits in the middle don't work at all. Um, and his death also does not work at all for me. Um, his death is really goofy. But the scenes where you're giving Mads Mikkelsen a chance to act and there is some meat to why he believes what he believes and is desperate to get the dial I think he's formidable, and I think that there's, like, actual drama happening in a way that I respond to. Mm-hmm. I also think he's a great example of using the time and place of this movie. You know, it's 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 a story about, you know, the Nazis who came over and became scientists and, mm-hmm. you know, were kind of repatriated or whatever and allowed to keep working. Um, and it, it, it 
plugs into the space race moment. I wish I wish that meant something. Uh, but but a lot of it adds up in a really nice way with that character. It feels like the right villain for the right time of this movie. Yeah. Also, they let the villain, the first villain of the the Craig Bond uh, franchise, say his introduce himself by saying his last name and then his first name and his last name. <laughs> wow. It is. Yeah, I, I very much liked that we just had a villain who was like evil, but in a grounded, believable way. Like, like, so like we either have like overly sympathetic villains or sort of like cartoony villain villains. And this felt like a really villainy villain, as you were saying. I guess that's what you get when you, yeah, you bring back the Nazis and then go hard on them being evil. Brian, what's your lesson? Uh, my lesson uh, is if you are listening to this and you are the love interest in a Harrison Ford franchise, uh, not the actress, the character, don't marry the guy. Don't have kids. It <laughs> never works out. It's, it's always bad news. It's true. Yep. Um, no, I want to talk about this sort of less is more thing, which is a very common thing we say all the time, you know, but I was really thinking about it in the beginning of the movie and at the end of the movie, um, you know, specifically the de-aging stuff. Um, it's like, yeah, we can do convincing work now, but not for 20 minutes. You know, when I saw that, that shot in the trailer, which is the first shot of him in the movie, I was like, okay, you, you're doing pretty good here, you know, but I was hoping it was going to be a, a one scene or something. Right. And even if 90% of it's pretty good, the other 10%, I'm like, why am I looking, why am I watching a cartoon right now? Like this is, I'm so taken out of this. Um, and we talked about this in, I think, Rogue One, where I think the first time you see Tarkin, you see his reflection. And I was just like, oh, what a cool way to do. Oh, no, we're going to just show you his face for for the whole movie. Like, all right. Um, and, you know, and I, and I think that, like, it's, we were joking before with the Jurassic Park quote, you know, your, your scientists were so preoccupied with whether or not they could, they didn't stop to think if they should. And I feel like that's what we're getting with, with Luke and Mando and, and this stuff. It's like, look, we can do this now. So let's just do it a lot. And I'm like, but how cool would it be if you, you know, I was thinking, I was reimagining this opening sequence, you know, let's say it's not 25 minutes or whatever it is, but it's like 10 to 15 minutes. I was like, how cool would it be if you, you bookend the whole sequence with two shots of Indy and all of your money and resources and time go into making those two shots incredible. Like everything, all the stuff you put into the, the shots the rest of the way. And then you design this whole sequence where we never see him. So it's like, we've seen his face, so we know it's indie. But then, you know, look at Raiders, the opening of Raiders. You don't see his face for the longest time, right? Um and then you do this like side of the train thing, kind of like Last Crusade, kind of like like if you go to see the Indiana Jones live show uh, where, you know, obviously you're the audience and you're watching kind of the side scrolling thing. And then you, you know, you've got a stuntman running across the train and then you've got a car with the windows. And you're just seeing a silhouette running through punching Nazis and everything. And then finally you get to the end and then you've got, you know, you're cutting to the bad guys going, oh, there's a guy on the train. We got to get him. Da, da, da. And you build up this like legendary character and you do this whole big intro. And then finally at the end, he walks into frame and he says his whatever his one line is, you know, and it'd just be like, oh, cheer, cheer, cheer. Not, oh, my God, we're staring at this cartoon for 25 minutes and like I'm so over it. And um, and it's the exact same thing we talked about uh, with the ending, right? Like how how exciting would the ending be if, you know, you have to have a big 
finale to your movie, obviously. So you figure out how to do that separately. But then if the time travel part was, we're just getting this little glimpse of something and that's going to stick in our minds and it's going to be so exciting rather than, look, we did a thing and we're going to show it to you and we're just going to keep showing it to you and look at it, look at it, look at the extras, you know? Um, and, and I think that there is something, there's something really special about you know, of course, Spielberg, like we've talked about Jaws, right? Whether whether or not it was a mechanical reason, <laughs> you don't see the shark that much. And that's really cool. Um, and and I think that I want there to be more movies that are putting restrictions on themselves and then using those restrictions in a really exciting, yep. cool way yeah. um, so that we as the audience are getting the less is more thing. We're like, oh, man, I want to go back and look at that one scene again. You know, or I want to watch that one thing because it was just there for a second. I just got a glimpse of it. And we are in this very all movies are three hours now. And you're seeing any idea we have. You're going to look at it for half an hour. And that's, that's just how we're making movies now. Um, so, yeah, I think there's I think there's something that's being a little lost right now with the kind of less is more ideology. I think this is why I'm such a huge fan of Denis Villeneuve's big sci-fi epics that he's making, because it feels like the one slice of studio movies that are using CGI and not anti-CGI, kind of like a Nolan movie that still, he aims for this um, less is more. Uh, and, and I think Rachel in Blade Runner, like right. perfect example. Exactly. Right? Like one exactly. shot and then that's it. Yeah. yeah. And it's, and it's almost the deep fakiness of it is almost part of the thematic sure. thing it's doing, you know? So I, I think, yeah, it's, it's, I really love that. We at least, he seems to have the power and clout to make, you know, he's not doing franchise movies like star Wars, but he's doing these big movies and kind of almost, it seems like he's insisting upon a less is more approach, um, whether they're not maybe as flashy or as in your face, with their effects as other films, but because of that, they feel more timeless and they're going to age really well. Yeah. Yeah. It's very good at visual effects. Michael. So my lesson, I'm still trying to figure out what the solve is to it and what the actual takeaway is. The problem um, that I was feeling in this movie was that it's too easy from, for characters to get from point A to point B Mm. And like between, but they have all the vehicles, Michael. <laughs> they have all of them. They have boats. They've got planes. And they can talk about going to Casablanca for five minutes, and then the map goes. They went to Casablanca <laughs> and kept going. <laughs> right. And, and there's yeah, there's something like I guess ironic about talking about this in an Indiana Jones movie where they made famous the like, and then you watch a map where dot 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 they yeah. travel from mm -hmm. here. But still, there's I think the the narrative convenience that pops up in a lot of movies recently, especially these big blockbuster movies is for just for some reason, really bugging me where, you know, before he goes to, where does it, where does he go? Cairo? Where does he go to, to Tangier? Tangier. Yeah. yeah. There's, I don't know. There's just so much made so much happens inside of a location where it's like, we're in the 1960s New York. We're going to have a big, crazy sequence where like, Somehow he's still not dying, still not being caught. He's on a, he's on a horse. He's on the subway. He's doing this. Thing. Like so much happens there, and it's like they're not. They're not he's gonna live. He's gonna be fine. Like I don't know why we're watching this for so long. Uh, and then it's like, okay, that beat happened. Quick dialogue, dialogue, and now fast forward, and now he's here, so we can have the next scene. And and in every step, you know, it's like, are they gonna get to the place? 
first, yes, but then Mads Nicholson is going to magically find a way to be right behind them in every scene. And just every scene is just, they get there, they do a thing, and then he shows up, and then they get there, and they do a thing. And then he should, like, that just happened over and over. My favorite version of that was when Mads Nicholson, for some reason, is just, like, looking through his binoculars at their boat for a really long time. Like, (laughs) long enough for an entire scene to happen on their boat where they decide to go to a new, like, location. (laughs) And we cut Pats to Mads. He's still there. And he's like, oh, they're going, like, east instead of west. How interesting. Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And then he puts it all together. So, like, (laughs) I just feel like it, it zaps any, like, room for me to, like, worry about what's gonna happen or I, I don't know there's just something that i just feel like this scene's gonna happen and then you're gonna do the next scene and then you're gonna do the next scene and i'm not worried about anything the characters are are doing and so i'm gonna keep thinking about this and investigating this and if you guys have any theories about this i'm curious about why why it's like this well, I just want to say, you know, living in L.A., we always watch movies. Where we're like, how do they get from you know there <laughs> to there or whatever? And one day I woke up on the south coast of Spain and went to Tangier for lunch, which is another continent, and then came back to Spain that same day. This is a real story. It, it took a long time. There's a lot of traveling involved. <laughs> so Indiana yeah. Jones gets to just zap there on a, on a map graphic. And I was like, no, man, I had to like show my passport. I had to be on a boat for three hours each way to take a cab. There were camels. There's a whole situation. So traveling is hard, movies. Well, I guess maybe this is on the topic of all the vehicles, but it is a little confusing and odd in this movie that it seems like it's doing an Indiana Jones thing by focusing on travel as an aspect. Because thinking about Last Crusade, right, they had like, we need to maybe get on a motorcycle and go to Berlin, but then we have to go this way to get to, you know, Egypt or whatever. Um, Alexandria. That's a really big part of that movie, right? The travel aspect is like, we're going to get on a plane. We're going to go to Venice. Then from Venice, we need to get to here. Then we're going to get on another plane. The whole trying to escape from Germany, they get on a, a you know, Zeppelin. Blimp, yeah. And then they have to take a plane. And then <laughs> yeah. from there, they have to, like, walk. Then they get in a car. And then they're, like, whatever. So the the number of vehicles is a little excessive in this movie. But it's not necessarily not in the spirit of Indiana Jones. But the sense of space still doesn't feel quite right, to your point, Michael. Yeah. And it's, like, it's the, the journey that's like the fun part. It should be harder. Right. It just should be harder. It should be harder. Yeah. We're going to places and like driving around like almost in circles in these places for long periods of time. Yes. Mm-hmm. And then going to a new place to do the same thing versus the journey itself being the adventure, which is what Last Crusade is all about. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's the thing about a movie that it could be called globe trotting, right? This is a globe trotting movie. But I feel like the travel aspect should be more of like the meat of the difficulty, right? If movies are all about conflict and difficulty and obstacles, then they should be bigger obstacles. Yeah. Let's have this conversation again when we talk about Dead Reckoning, where I guarantee you Tom Cruise is going to look at camera and say, we're going to country, and then they're going to be in country. (laughs) to country. (laughs) Yeah. Do you feel like, yeah, some of the Mission Impossibles have this problem too, a a little bit. Yeah, they have have like five hours to save his wife and they're already like in Shanghai. (laughs) But the Mission Impossibles have a history of brushing over it. Like at no point Mm. is actually the globetrotting part an obstacle. Whereas Mm. in the history of the Indiana Jones franchise, it very much is. 
because of the time period. Want to see the trotting? Sure, kind of glow. Yeah. Need to see trotting. Yeah. What else have you guys been watching recently? <laughs> Brian, what have you been watching recently? Um, to keep uh, with the old white man theme, um, I uh, watched a double feature of David Lynch dramas, um, which I had seen before, uh, The Elephant Man and The Straight Story. Um, and I watched The Elephant Man a bunch uh, when I was like a teenager, and I've only seen The Straight Story once. You watched uh, the Richard Farnsworth on a lawnmower movie? Yeah. Oh, David, speaking of Disney, also David Lynch, the funniest five seconds of history in film history is Walt Disney Pictures presents a David Lynch David film. Lynch film. <laughs> what? Um, yeah. And I'll, I'll get to straight story in a second, but I want to say Elephant Man is so good. And it's 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 a beautiful story. It's beautifully shot. And John Hurt's performance in that movie is just mind-blowingly good he's so good anthony hopkins is in it and he's fantastic of course mel brooks produced it and was just like i'm not gonna put my name on this movie so no one goes in expecting anything other than like a, a drama um and and man straight story is a very kind of goofy disney-ish family-ish kind of movie and it's not and it, oh it feels clunky a lot of the time but it is a touching story. And again, the lead performance, Richard Farnsworth, he just sells the hell out of this character. It was his final film. And I just believe every word that comes out of his mouth. And yeah, it is. He gets on a lawnmower and drives across country to go see Harry Dean Stanton because they're they're brothers and they've been fighting for a long time. And And yeah, so if you haven't seen either of these movies, I recommend them both. But Elephant Man is like a classic, you should see it kind of movie. Straight Story is like, don't expect a masterpiece, but if you if you just sort of give yourself over to it, it will pay off in the end. Nice. Interesting. Okay. Cool. Alex, what have you been watching? So I started the new season of Black Mirror on Netflix. Mm. Um, I'm a fan of the show. And, you know, there's episodes I'm not a big fan of, but episodes that are some of my favorite you know, moments of television ever. And uh, the first episode of this new season, I really enjoyed. It felt like a classic Black Mirror scenario. Uh, so I am now eagerly looking forward to the rest of the season and seeing what else they got in store for us. Um, Selma Hayek is in this first episode, part of the time just playing herself, which is just really delightful. <laughs> <laughs> Annie Murphy from Schitt's Creek is also in it. Yeah, really fun. she's also great. The, yeah, I was pleasantly delighted by that first episode of like, oh, okay, Black Mirror, you, you still got it when you want it. You still yeah. got it. Yeah. Nice. Trisha, what have you been watching? Yeah, I've been watching a bunch of Elvis movies lately. Um... <laughs> What's the Trisha theme going to be today? No I one love knows. It. I love uh, it. But the one I want to talk about is King Creole, um, which is generally... Generally considered to be Elvis's like best movie or like the most movie like Elvis movie <laughs> that you can watch. Um, it's from 1958. I I really, really liked it. It's kind of a drama, actually. Um, it's Michael Curtiz uh, is the director. So, you know, he knows what he's doing. Um, but basically it takes place in New Orleans. Elvis plays. He's like a teen who's trying to graduate from school, but also he's working. His family is in dire financial straits. And so he like falls in with these hoodlums, but then this nightclub owner gives him a chance to be like a singer. Right. And so he like starts his singing career and, um, it kind of all works in a lot of ways. Like the flashiness of the new Orleans setting sort of works with Elvis's like vibe. And 
it's like a direct part of the plot that he has to like learn how to be a performer and like sing and perform really well. Um, so that becomes like a big part of it. And uh, Walter Matthau plays the antagonist. Uh, and there's a point later in the movie where they have a fist fight. So if you have ever wanted to see Elvis punch Walter Matthau, <laughs> I, I deeply recommend King Creel. Um, there's also like a love triangle going on in it. It's, but it, you know, it, it takes itself really seriously. It's very much like it's trying to be um, like a streetcar named desire type of vibe kind of, you know, um, and you know, he's no Marlon Brando, but he's, he's pretty good. And the whole thing, the whole setup and the whole thing works pretty well. So uh, definitely recommend here. King Creel. Nice. I'm now stuck thinking about the person that was heard you and was like, oh, I have always wanted to see Elvis punch Walter Matthau. <laughs> Walter Matthau. Like, yeah. who is that person? Why are you listening to this podcast? Uh, <laughs> I also just realized that it's grumpy old men that is the the theme of mm-hmm. my what am I watching and Indiana Jones and what you're watching. Exactly right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I started uh, there's an Apple TV Plus show called Drops of God. Uh, that is based on uh, a Japanese manga of the same name. I'm only two or three episodes in, and it's about wine tasting, and it's super tense. Interesting. I saw the trailer for this. It looked really, like, interesting. It's unlike anything I've I've seen. Uh, It's really interesting. It's really slow, but, like, gripping. It's shot gorgeously. It's almost like... Like if David Fincher went on a vacation and got like a little wine drunk and like decided to shoot a movie <laughs> where it's like this is a, a scene where someone will slowly sniff different glasses of wine and taste things. And every shot is immaculate and different and cinematic. And you're hanging on every sound and every moment because the story is such that whether or not this person can taste the wine really well is like a huge, huge high stakes deal. Uh it's really fascinating. The performances thus far are really good. And it, again, it is slow, but in that kind of almost like before sunrise, before midnight style of like, you're kind of getting lulled into a mood and now you're on a ride following these two characters that for, I don't want to spoil things, but for reasons are going to have to get really good at tasting this wine and identifying wine <laughs> and you care <laughs> you're like it's, it's really intense um so i think people should check it out i'm i'm excited to watch the rest of it and to just look at its gorgeousness happen um but yeah drops of god on apple tv plus it's pretty cool nice yeah okay well we talked about a new indiana jones movie you guys that's a thing that happened we didn't really talk about there was the last thing i was thinking about is that in this movie, as we kind of pointed out, there's this sort of meta, you know, Phoebe Waller-Bridge is like, we need you, Indy, you need to come back to our time. And it's different than, you know, like a creed where, you know, Brian, I think you talked about like, like having uh, Rocky as part of the story world, be a famous character, be someone that like it puts the world of the story in our world in alignment. And even like Top Gun Maverick kind of has that where like Maverick's like, you know, he's crazy Maverick the way Tom Cruise is crazy Tom Cruise. There, there isn't that in this movie also. And so that was just an interesting kind of oversight or I don't know if it's oversight, but something that was missing that they seem to textually want to 
talk about as if, yeah, we need you. Indy, you are a great person that feels absent in this one. Um, it's interesting. Yeah, I mean, there's a little bit of a thing of if the finale of every indie movie is going to be this really quiet mystical thing that nobody else knows about, then in the real world, he's just this professor who goes on, you know, long sabbaticals and comes <laughs> up with stitches, comes back with stitches every few years. Yeah. Yeah. I thought that the subtext of the scene where uh, Phoebe Waller-Bridge's character, whose name is Helena Shaw, um, was talking to Archimedes. The subtext of that is obviously, so she's telling Archimedes, like, Archimedes, you are a great man. You are respected by your people. You are a hero to so many. You are a great teacher. Mm-hmm. Like, the subtext is obviously that she's saying all of this to Indiana Jones. And her point in that is that you belong in your world and Indy belongs in our world. He is our Archimedes or whoever. To your point, Michael, I just wish there were more of that. Like, um, you know, we see, obviously, there's the parallel where like in earlier Indiana Jones movies, his students are hanging on every word and his female students all like adore him. And <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, but like even, you know, his office is super crowded during like office hours. Everyone like wants to talk to him and the museum is always happy to take whatever he finds, blah, blah, blah. So if there was just like one person left in his life that was like, you can't go away, we need you. Right. <laughs> Mm-hmm. earlier <laughs> <laughs> not at the end no yeah uh then that might mean something anyway yeah well emission emission impossible and followed they made they made it very like a goal of the movie to state why ethan is needed you know yeah angela bassett says it. she says <laughs> you know the one and the many you care about both and and yeah we don't have the same thesis for indiana jones it's kind of like we, it's like the whole movie it's like don't know that we needed this. <laughs> so, yeah. Not sure what to, to say about it. Yes. Well, yeah. So we will talk about, uh, yeah, all of that a lot more in our next episode on Fallout and Rogue Nation. And a reminder that, yeah, the Barbie Oppenheimer vote, it's getting down to it. And our film club chat for our top tier patrons is going to be on either Barbie or Oppenheimer, whichever one doesn't win the votes. So we still get to talk about that movie. So if you want to chat with us about one of those movies, uh, head to the Beyond the Screen Play Patreon to sign up. We post the details about when those chats are going to happen over there. Um, yeah, and we want to say a big thank you, as always, to the patrons that make this show possible. Thank you to our producer, Vince Major, our editors, Donovan Bullen, Caleb Berg, Graham Harther, and Eric Snyder. I'm Michael Tucker, and I've been joined today by Trisha Rand, Brian Bittner, and Alex Kayados. Off our Twitter handles from the show notes, send us a tweet and say hi, and we will see you in the next episode for Mission Impossible Rogue Nation and Mission Impossible Fallout. Bye, everybody. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye.